This is the Wildfire Lessons Podcast. Our goal is to promote learning by revealing the complexity and risk in the wildland fire environment. We share the lessons. The learning that follows is up to you. Hi, I'm Kelly Woods, Director of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center. On today's episode of the podcast, I sit down with Sarah Fisher and Chad Fisher to talk about learning in the Wildland Fire Service. Sarah is the Deputy Fire Director of Aviation and Operations for the U.S. Forest Service. Chad retired from federal service just days after recording this conversation. The position he retired from was the Acting Fire and Aviation Management Division Chief for the National Park Service. Sarah and Chad share their different experiences, landing them both near the top of their respective organizations. They each talk about their path and the lessons they learned along the way. Throughout the conversation, Sarah and Chad highlight their perspectives on learning and legacy. They also provide a glance into their world, balancing careers and family time. I value the personal connection both Sarah and Chad have to the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center, and I think you will too. Super excited today to have Sarah Fisher and Chad Fisher sit down with us. And I I just want to frame it up a little bit. We looked at trying to pull together this podcast from the Lessons Learned Center perspective to kind of reflect on our 20-year anniversary. And we were talking about how could, you know, who would be someone we could talk to about this? And then it was actually out walking my dogs one day and I was like, oh my gosh, the Fishers. And it came to me and I, I think it's really cool because, you know, Chad, obviously, you're the the supervisor of the director of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center, but you've also been a part of it a long time in your positions with the Park Service, the the safety position, the ops position, and and now in the branch chief position or division chief position, both of those, you know, you you offer a lot of perspectives and cover for us. You know, it's been really cool. And then Sarah, it's such an honor to to visit with you because your dad was Rick Gale, who had a very storied career with the National Park Service in wildland fire leadership. You and the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center are part of the same legacy. We're part of your dad's legacy. Obviously, you are because you're his beautiful daughter who's gone on to do these amazing things. And we are part of his legacy because he was the fire director at the time we were formed. And the the rumor is that in a meeting, he was getting impatient that this effort wasn't moving forward. So he pounded his fist on the table and said, we're going to host the director position and it's going to happen now. And that's how the program got started. So, so we're super thrilled to have you here to get your perspective on learning in the Wildland Fire Service and, and just hear, hear about the path that led you uh, to where you are and, and learn about how you navigate. You're sort of like this major power couple in Wildland Fire and it's, it's interesting to, uh, to, to hear and get some insight. And I have to say, we started talking about this podcast and then Chad announced his retirement. So that'll be another thing we can talk about your legacy. So, so welcome. Thank you. It's Thanks. good to be here. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's start with just, you know, telling us a little bit about 
who you are, what you do, how you got here, and let's see, they're pointing at each other to see who's (laughs) going to go first. I'm going to go with ladies first, Sarah. So tell us your position. You're in a killer position um, with the Forest Service. Tell us about that and, and talk about you know, the, the, you got fire in your blood from the time you were, you were raised and what, what led you where you are now? Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks Kelly. It's great to be here. Um, yep. Currently I serve as the deputy director for fire and aviation management for the forest service. Um, so yeah, I was raised, you know, I was raised in the national park service or a parky. That's right. Um, it's a little still in my blood. We were third generation as kids growing up and entering the park service. My grandfather was, um, a, a superintendent at Olympic National Park and retired as a regional director. And so my dad was raised in the park service as well um, at Grand Tetons and Carlsbad. And um, I believe he started his career as a, I think they called them fire control aides um, at Lava Beds as a GS2. Um, so yeah, we were raised, I was raised at the Grand Canyon primarily. Um, and, you know, my dad, his background was primarily law enforcement and, and fire. And so that's what I was used to. I was used to seeing my dad be gone and, and out on incidents and managing, um, fires. Uh, they had set teams back in the day, special event teams. And that was usually these big law enforcement events. And they would come to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon and do training. And, and me and my sisters would be like, props. And, and <laughs> I can remember Cindy being a hostage in the back of a ranger car oh, nice. while, while they did the training and, you know, just kind of crying. Cause I was like, what's happening to my sister? You know, I, I, I watched my dad participate on and be an incident commander and an area commander. Um, and my mom as well. My mom was a finance section chief on a type one team for many years. And so as I got older, you know, it kind of got to the point where it was like, we, we got to go do this. We have a fire assignment. So are you good? I'm like, be gone for a couple weeks. And, and, but when you're, you know, growing up in a national park, definitely didn't have the concerns. I feel like I have as a parent right now, I stress about everything. My kids getting on the bus and <laughs> like walking through the neighborhood. And that was, we had pretty much free range at, at the Grand Canyon, but yeah. So I, I wasn't sure I knew anything else than government life, went to college and, um, and always came back and worked seasonally as a park ranger at Grand Canyon while I was going to college and um, got involved in supporting uh, fire from more of a militia perspective as I could and sort of that experience and finally got into a permanent position. That was kind of the goal back then. Everybody tried to get permanent and and my pathway was to take the clerk typist test, which you had to take it about eight times to score high (laughs) enough to where they could pick you up into an administrative, into an administrative position off the clerk typist test. But it kind of moved me into an admin budget type of role. And um, I think it was in the late 90s that Dan Ultrogi was the FMO at Grand Canyon at the time. And, and he pretty much just pointed at me and said, you, you know budget, you know numbers, you're going to be a cost unit leader on the type one team in the Southwest this year. And it really wasn't an option. <laughs> <laughs> And I was not excited about that. The first fire experience was a little rough and I was just like, I don't know what I've gotten into. But I do think there's a little bit of it's in your blood. There's just the camaraderie that you build working with a team and a really great group of people and you come together, um, you know, for an emergency when when people are in need and need help and you're able to help them solve this complex problem. And it's very rewarding. So I continued my career working on incident management team qualifications while I moved around a little bit. 
just kind of, sort of fell into some relationships with folks. I knew I was pretty interested in incident business and and kind of nerdy that way. Made a lot of friends within the Forest Service and mentors that sort of pointed me towards a position at NIFSI working for the Forest Service. And at the time, uh, Tori Henderson was the administrative officer and also happened to be the chair of the NWCG Incident Business Committee. So I accepted a position with her and uh, uh, she pulled me in to work with the Incident Business Committee. And that was probably 2002, I guess. And it was kind of game on. I mean, it just became, I became so involved in incident business and moved around into a couple other positions, did a stint with Fish and Wildlife Service as their administrative officer and incident business um, lead, and then uh, moved into the branch chief of incident business for the Forest Service. And at the same time, I was continuing to work on qualifications and moved into, you know, a finance section chief, command and general staff position and got very involved in supporting um, S520 and, and the development of command and general stuff people. And it was super rewarding. And I had a lot of mentors in the Forest Service that really reached out to me and um, challenged me to step out of my comfort zone and to to think a little bit more broadly than just, you know, your knowledge of incident business, but your knowledge of operations and everything that you're supporting, you can, you know, challenge yourself and move into more of a leadership type role and that you don't have to be an SME in every single aspect, but you, you need to have the skill set to lead people. I was hesitant for sure. I was hesitant, spent almost 13 years in that incident business job because I was so hesitant, but then had an opportunity to detail into the deputy director position for the Forest Service. And it was just an amazing experience. It's a fabulous group of people to work for. It's hard, but it's super rewarding. And the highs are really high. When when you're successful, it's it's fantastic. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And, and it gave me the confidence to apply for the job. And, and uh, so I was selected last summer and, and started in July of 2022 officially. Yeah, I look forward to kind of where it goes and, and the continued challenges. Awesome. You know, Sarah, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the very first time we ever met, I was actually expecting my son Grant and I came into the Forest Service to say hi to Cheryl Mollis. Yeah, so I knew Cheryl, so I popped in to say hi, and you were in there with your oldest, Beckett. Oh, right. But you were doing the Babes in the Woods. Beckett was just a little baby, and I remember um, meeting you and just thinking, this gal has tons of great energy, and I'm like, she's pulling off this Babes in the Woods <laughs> thing. I, I think I can I can, and can make it work. And uh Right after it was announced that that you got the deputy director job, I was walking my dogs through the park, you know, down in our neighborhood, and I happened to see Beckett, and I was like, hey, and we were talking, I said, Beckett, do you know your mom's a badass? (laughs) And he's like, oh, yeah, and he's like, I'm pretty proud of her. So it was really cool. It was just kind of a full circle moment there, yes. Yeah, and Beckett and Grant have become pretty good buddies as well, so. Yeah, yeah, our our boys are good friends. They have a video game group. I think they call it Donkey Ramen. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what... That's what 16, 17-year-old boys, they are into their video game stuff. So, but it's, it's better than what it could have been, I guess. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm I don't think I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Donkey Ramen. They'll love the shout out here in this episode. Yeah, they will. Chad, how about you? Definitely a different path than Sarah. Yeah. Um, 
clearly I, I ain't from Idaho, right? <laughs> so I grew up in Western North Carolina, just loved being outside, right? Uh, hunting, fishing, hunting, hunting some more, that sort of thing. When I graduated high school, went to tech school because I wanted to be a game warden, wanted to work for the state of North Carolina, maybe one day for Fish and Wildlife Service as a special agent, but I didn't really know. I didn't know anything about it, like nothing against the high school I went to, but there wasn't a whole lot of career counseling or college discussion, you know, in the late 80s. And in tech school, it became clear to me that I had to get my act together, right? We took this trip, and on that trip, we stopped at Madame Mesquite National Wildlife Refuge down on the coast of North Carolina. The fire management officer came out and was talking to us how he got picked to be the one stuck talking to the college kids. I don't know. Um, but he told us that he had several seasonal fire jobs opening up, encouraged us to apply. Well, I wasn't old enough to be a game warden. I thought, well, I kind of want to work for fish down the road maybe, so I should put my app in and see what happens. They wound up picking three or four of us up. And, you know, this was back in the day. It was an eight-hour drive from where I lived to the refuge. They called us and said, we want you to come down here and take the, the fitness test. It wasn't like we're offering you a job. It's like we want you to come here and take the fitness test. And back then it was the run for your job, right, the mile and a half. <laughs> and they didn't even give us the offer for the step test. It was like we're going to take you out on this flat causeway uh, across the refuge and you're going to run. And so three of us, we kind of hooked up. I was the furthest away and we met and we all drove down there went to the refuge, ran the mile and a half. They hauled us back to the headquarters. Dave Kitts said, okay, I'll let you know if you get the job. And then we got in our vehicle and started driving the eight hours back. <laughs> so, you know, it was definitely a different situation. So anyway, I got on the, the crew at the refuge and um, did that first season or so. Um, tried to get on with the North Carolina wildlife, but my vision didn't meet their medical standard. <laughs> And by then, I'm like, well, I'm kind of digging this fire thing, but I'm not real sure if I'm going to go back to the refuge. And a tech school friend uh, called me and said that um, his supervisor down at Cape Romaine Refuge was moving to Pocosin Lakes, which was the refuge I worked at. And then he was a good guy, great to work for, good leader, and he thought I would enjoy working you know, for him. So I went back, wound up working for Chris Farinetti for a long time, and... Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, it's his fault that I'm still in fire. If it wasn't for him, I could have been somebody, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, he wound up as one of one of my groomsmen when we got married in uh, 2004, I guess it was. So, you know, ten years after my last season with him, um, stay in touch with Chris and and literally. Uh, so eventually, um, you know, that fall or the fire season was fall spring. I wanted to come west. I applied for a job out here on the Payette and New Meadows. I came out, was on the Severity crew in 92. Great experience, you know, good opportunity since we were Severity funded. Anytime there were fires, they had to put us on them, right? <laughs> you know, pretty much. And I know the Price Valley Hell Attack hated us for it, right? <laughs> because we'd come rolling up and they'd have to bump us to the front of the load a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a couple of years. I would follow the fire season to the south and then back out here the in 93 i ran the little severity crew had sent me to the Asheville hot shots that spring 30 years ago i was on Asheville 26 maybe yeah. that's funny isn't that's it crazy funny. kelly like yeah. how time flies like I, I just didn't realize i didn't realize you were on that crew too yeah yeah so um 
you know, it was a great experience. Um, went back to the refuge somewhere along the line. I realized I should probably go back to college, get a, at least a bachelor's. I got on Alpine Hotshots, um, spent the 94 season with them, working for J.P. Mattingly, Dave Nemi, um, people that I still stay in touch with. Dan Warden was a saw boss, and I wound up running a saw for most of the season and just learned a lot just watching them and the way that they ran the crew, the way that they took input. You know, it was clear who was in charge, right? But uh, they would listen to people, good people to learn from. Went back to school that following spring at University of Montana, got picked up in McCall to jump. And, you know, I was expecting to go back to Alpine and, and work, but had the opportunity to go jump. So I went to McCall for a couple of years while I was in school. I had put in for a job on, I think it was called a prescribed fire crew back then. Um, what people know now as a wildland fire module, right? So Nate Benson hired me, you know, this was like eight years of seasonal work and, and working pretty much year round, a lot of it. I got my first appointment on the Lewis and Clark out of Shoto, Montana. Um, was only there for, for one season. Nate hired me back. Nate moved on. I got the module leader, still 24 and two. I was with that program, I think four years and had the opportunity to come to Boise and work in a training specialist job. It was the first permanent full-time job I ever had was at NIFSI for the park service as a training specialist. And um, just kind of went from there, like training specialist to the Fish and Wildlife Service National Training Program Manager for Fire, back into the park service um, as a safety program manager, wildland fire safety program manager. Um, was pretty engaged early on in the Dutch Creek mitigations and, and working that and trying to get some things moving there. Um, had the IRPG for a couple of iterations. Jim Cook did me a solid and handed that off to me. You are, I might be wrong, but I believe you're responsible for the purple cover. Yep. <laughs> That's the, the last iteration, yeah. Well, yeah, and the, it's funny, man. People, a lot of times, they didn't care what was in the IRPG. They just wanted to know what color the cover was going to be. <laughs> And that was like, I would not tell anybody. And that was advice from Cook. Like, Yeah. It, well, and it's super handy that it changes color right. because you know you don't have to look at the published date, right? It's like, oh, not yeah. the purple one. Now I need the yellow one, yeah. you know? Yeah, it was, and it was pretty cool. There's, you know, there were some reasons behind like the green one I wanted, like a fluorescent green, but that was as bright as they had. Yeah. The purple one, a um, couple of things. One, you know, the the, like the ribbons from the wildland firefighter. Yeah, there's meaning in that color in our culture for sure. Yeah, yeah, kind of about that time, you know, Sarah was on teams through all of this and her sister's in fire too. And she was coming up and doing assignments at Nick and doing stuff. And she was a godsend helping with the kids. As I was trying to work, Sarah was gone, you know, just the juggle. Yeah. And Beth's favorite color was purple. <laughs> nice. So... That, that had a lot to do with it. Um, so there's a shout out to sister-in-law, Beth. I'll work something in for Cindy later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moved from the safety program manager to the operations program leader. Within the park service. Within the park service, yep. And then ultimately into the branch chief of wildland fire. And then I've been the acting division chief. Been doing that since August as acting. Kind of had a, a long fall and we can talk retirement later, but really just thinking about, I think it's time decided not to compete for the division chief job and to, to move on in life. So, so yeah, it's been really good. Great opportunity, great, great exposures and getting to see a lot of different stuff and, and beyond fires from the Everglades to the Arctic circle and a lot of places in between and good people. 
Very cool. One of the one of the questions that we've you know asked people in general, but especially in our twenty year anniversary, we want to know what learning in the Wildland Fire Service means to people uh, at all levels. And I think, um, as we talked about, that you you both come at that from a unique perspective. Uh, so I'm just going to throw it out there, and we'll we'll start with Chad this time, Sarah. Perfect. Because we were, we were talking about this a little bit on the drive out here, and I'm like, no, you can't. That's my. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, well, right. and and uh, that's cool. I mean, we're not going to let you get away with just like, yeah, what he said or whatever. <laughs> but 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 I, you know, it is it is it's fair. You you spend. I'm sure you spend a lot of time in dialogue talking about fire. I mean hopefully that's not all you talk about right and i'm sure it's not but i'm sure there is a piece of that and clearly you have some shared vision and thoughts on that you know or uh, so i think that's okay but yeah chad frame it up for us well i would say for me i think about like continuous improvement right you know what what does the learning in the wildland fire service mean to me it's getting better every day and yeah Sometimes that means taking a class. Sometimes that means taking a trainee assignment and being a trainee, not expecting to get an evaluation and get everything done right off the bat, right? Um, but even in the little things, and and I'm a firm believer in like cross-cutting, like something could happen in one community that's completely outside of fire that really applies to us too. And I think that's one of the beauties of the Lessons Learned Center is really if you're on a, a wildland fire module and something happens with a hell attack crew and, and you read that it it can apply to you right yeah, you know sure. look for those nuggets and and pull them out so not always trying to hit the home run but hitting a whole bunch of singles and kind of playing money ball right yeah. um, to me that's continuous improvement that's what learning's about um, always trying to get you know one percent better every day yeah yeah that that was the word that we were both fighting over was continuous improvement right i got to use it yeah he got to use it and you know i i agree um you know taking the opportunity from from learning from the good and the bad um that those outcomes there's a lot to learn from there and it's funny that you talk about I know we we probably will talk about this later, but you know the dialogue and having constant dialogue about fire, and we try not to. But you know, when it comes to learning, it, we we realized recently just how much I think our kids are learning as oh well. Yeah. We had a we had a, a just a, a family discussion not too long ago based around the Demar Hamlin incident with the the Bills and the the Bengals and our thirteen year old. Um, the next night came home and and he just said, "So I think." Um, I really think the NFL, you know, it wasn't the NFL's decision about whether they continued to play that game or not. It really, um, it should have been the players. That was the and players' coaches. decision and coaches' yeah. decision. It wasn't the NFL's decision. And and so we kind of got into a conversation and he said, and he ends up with this long example of, well, if you're on an incident and you're going to be, you know, and there's, you got a crew there, or you got an incident management team there and they're going to go in and they tell you, you know, I don't want to do that. You're going to tell them they're going to have to do that. And, <laughs> and, and he just, you know, continued and we were like, okay, well, let's have a conversation about that. What if you're the leader of that crew and they think it's a good idea to continue to do that, but you have additional knowledge and, and experience that, that maybe you don't think that's a good place to put them in. And it was the most 
amazing yeah. conversation and critical Same. thinking oh, that that, that we saw and i was i was shocked i mean i pretty much just sat there with my mouth hanging open because i couldn't believe the words that were coming out of his mouth so on one side it was like oh god we talk fire too much in this house because i can't believe he's using this example but on the other hand i mean his it was a fascinating conversation yeah. and the critical thinking that he was doing to to regarding that situation it was awesome that's very yeah, cool Sarah, that's you know i've told a couple of people about that and number one, it validated my decision to retire. <laughs> like we should probably do something other than fire. Um, but just listening to him, you know, he was using all the lingo, you know, talking about a crew about to catch a fire and the team saying, hey, you need to stop. And the crew should, we should defer to the crew. And for all the crews out there that listen to this, heck yeah, I believe in deferring to expertise. Absolutely. But what we talked about with, with the boys is risk tolerance, right? Yeah. So... And, and I frequently try when I have an opportunity to talk to agency administrators, like as an agency administrator, have you made it clear what your risk tolerance is? And speaking across cutting, that really came to me after working on some serious accident investigations that had nothing to do with fire. Mm -hmm. And that employee's level of risk acceptance doesn't align with the level of risk tolerance the agency is willing to take. And so we had that whole conversation with the boys and it was, I told Asa, like, I love your critical thinking, right? And I think as parents, you know, looking at Sarah here, um, as long as we can raise kids, humans that think critically, then I'll be pretty happy, right? As long as they're productive members of society, that's yeah. my goal. <laughs> that's the best we can hope for, isn't it? Yeah, yeah for sure. Now then, if I, we can do it without them having to frame everything up in the world of fire, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that'll be, that'd be good. Yeah. But it could be worse. Yeah, it's not a bad sure. thing. For sure. So thinking about that, learning in the Wildland Fire Service, and Sarah, putting some context back into your dad, too, and what he was thinking, you know, 20 years ago, potentially, and what the vision might be from your perspective and then perhaps consider the lens of of your dad what how do you think things have changed over 20 years since we've had this more this this higher level focus on learning in the wildland fire service and and being a learning organization you know what what do you think i i mean i think I think it's amazing where we've come and the opportunities for us to learn as an organization and not, I'll say the word, not just investigate, but learn. And, it, and it's really with the intent for improvement mm -hmm. and, and not to place blame, but to, to get us to a space where, um, like I said, from the good and the bad that we can continue and emphasize those things that work and work well. And we can, and we can course correct where we need to, um, and, and that there's a safe space for everyone to be honest and transparent that leads us to a better environment. And I think, I think that's, what's changed a lot is creating that space for people to feel that comfort level, um, and the support of the agencies, um, to be a part of the process. Um, so not that it's perfect and I think we still have a lot to improve, but, um, you know, is perfection even possible, right? Yeah. Like it, it just, if we, if we get to a point where we feel like we're perfect, we've quit learning, yeah, right? That's probably true. We've yeah, lost absolutely. the, the, the edge to continually improve as you say, right? Yeah. Kelly, if you get, if you get to that point, 
where you think you've got it dialed, you're 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 wrong. <laughs> well, you're about to take a hard fall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Sarah, I, I mean, this is obviously asking you to project out, you know, on something. But what do you think your your dad would think about like that that fist pounding moment he had? Would do you think he'd be proud of what we've done? Do you think he'd be? I know he'd be a champion for it. I'm sure for for what we're doing. But yeah, what what do you think? Just knowing him, this you know, sort of larger than than life personality, such a big influence in wildland fire on the interagency arena and, and everything else. What what do you think? Yeah, I think a hundred percent he'd be proud. Um, he would be proud to see you know the influence the influence and the emphasis and that it, it has continued and. Um, you know, my dad was not, he would, he was a fist pounder for sure. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm definitely proud to be a Gale girl and I don't, and every now and then, um, you know, we'll be in a meeting and, and my Gale girl tendencies might come out. I don't pound, I haven't pounded the desk yet. I, I think he knew when to, when, when an issue was important enough that somebody needed to stand up and make a stand and he wasn't he wasn't afraid to do that. And, you know, a lot of people, they either loved him or they hated him. There was, there was not a lot of in between. Um, and I, I totally understand that. I was always a little cautious when people would say, are you Rick Gale's daughter? (laughs) And I never quite knew what was going to come next, but, um, you know, he was willing to be bold and, um, and put people in positions of influence that, that he thought would, would help the organization. And I think he'd be quite proud of, just where we've gone as an agent, as an interagency community. And, um, sometimes I miss that legacy. Sometimes I miss that boldness and that willingness to make those hard decision decisions and to take those hard stands. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, that can be lacking. And, and I know I, I try to walk a, a more fine line of a little bit of, you know, grace of how to accomplish that in a, a collaborative manner. But I think there's also sometimes a, a, a place, a time and place to pound a desk and, and to take a stand. So yeah. for sure, for sure. And, you know, one thing I know uh, that I've just read uh, about your dad and in, in some things that just, you know, kind of prepping for this is a lot of people have, uh, you know, chimed in to, to say how much he supported women in the the fire service emergency service and um i just have to think you know that the data of these three women who have gone on into all three of you work in natural resources right and and that to have a champion at home when you're young in your dad when you're a girl i i just think is so amazing and um it seems like uh yeah I, i was thinking yeah, he he might think it's kind of cool. We've had three directors of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center, and two of us have been women. And yeah. you know, that's uh, he of course hired the the first one, Paula. And uh, yeah, kind of kind of cool. He was always an advocate of women. When he passed away, I mean, the amazing stories that people told. Some of them were hilarious, also. But and that's what I grew up with watching. You know, I know people talk a lot about challenges that you face. Um, you know, getting in your career and where you've gone. And, and um, I have gotten, you know, the question of, you know, being a woman and moving in up into a deputy director role. And did I find that as a challenge or barriers? And, and in general, I would say 
no. I mean, I, I I can probably cite two instances in my career where I really felt like a bias against me um, for being female. Um, and actually, one of them came from another female. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting environment. But um, I, I do credit some of that, you know, just comfort level with me that it's that it's, you know, women are expected to be in every role because that's what I saw my dad do. And that's what he, you know, supported in when he was a leader as the unit manager on the North Rim, like half of our law enforcement officers were female. That's just, that's just what I saw. He had women in all levels of the organization and, and loved to see them in leadership roles. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like I had a mindset that I can do whatever I want to do because my dad set that up, you know? Yeah. And Sarah, I don't think your mom was a wallflower either, right? Oh, no. I mean, right. yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and, and to be married to Rick and to do the things she did, she had to have a strong personality. And and to be the housing officer at, what, Golden Gate and Grand Canyon, those aren't easy jobs. So I think, I mean, I think you probably had it from a couple of different angles. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I, I think that's probably true for, for any of us that are successful, uh, you know, if regardless of, of gender, having a good support system yeah. all the way from the time you're born on up to when you, when you launch out. And we're, we're sitting here approaching the launching phase, you know, really pretty quickly with a couple of our, you're with uh, Beckett oh, and yeah. Grant. It's kind of yeah. crazy. And as you said, are they going to be successful citizens? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Sarah, I want to go back. You know, you were talking about uh, your dad and pounding the the table and making the hard decisions. I think it's there. I just don't think it's as visible now. And and maybe people don't pound the table and so forth. And and when Tom Boatner retired um, for from those, the BLM. From the BLM, yeah. from those great of you, leader. Yeah, thing. absolutely. I, I told Tom that I was going to miss him because I think he was the last vestige of that style of leadership where he, you know, could really say what he meant without necessarily pissing everybody off or some people might not have liked it, but you know, but I think Tom could flex his leadership styles where your dad, I, he could for sure, but he didn't use it as often. Right. And so I think now with like the leadership development programs and the curriculums we have, I think that our emerging leaders and our, our, some folks that are in positions like yours now have had the opportunity to learn skills and how to flex that leadership style. And so I think there are times, I, trust me, I know you, um, there are times where you're like, hey, this is the way it's going to be, right? At, at least at home. Um, and, and I'm sure that that, and I know for me, there are times like you just have to say, okay, thank you for all that input. I have to use my judgment now and here's where we're going. Right. And then you got to be willing to course correct as needed. So I think that that really ties into the to the question um, that's still lingering here. What's changed? What do you think has changed, Chad, um, in the last twenty years? And I mean, you referenced the leadership development program. That's certainly one thing. What what else do you see as something that has changed in regard to you know workforce development as tied to learning in the Wildland Fire Service? I don't know. It, it might not be something that most people would think of as learning, Kelly. I don't know. But I think our culture has started to change. And I think some of that comes around back to the leadership development program. 
I think some of it just comes back to a greater emphasis on some of the things that, that you and Sarah were just talking about as far as um, a diverse workforce. And so, you know, I think about my very first Western fire that I was the IC for. And like there were air tankers on the way before I even got off the helicopter ride. And it was a Sam's throne fire and um, air attack was flying. And, and there was a hotshot crew on standby McCall and they got mobilized. Like I didn't order them. They were already on the way. And so all this stuff goes down. I tried to hand the fire over to the shot soup and um, the soup says, Vince, is that his name? It was Vince Wellbaum. I worked for Vinny. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was uh, at Price Valley. He was down at the Hellespot. And apparently when the soup got off the helicopter, Vince said, this is Chad's fire. So when I tried to give it to the soup, he's like, nope. He told me this is your fire. What do you want us to do? So he put his crew to work. I was kind of down at the, the hill of the fire. And I could hear the crew coming down the hill. And it was like, chink, cha-chink, chink, chink, chink. And I heard this kind of mumble. And the next thing I heard was shut the bleep up, put your GD head down and dig bleep. <laughs> and it went from chink, chink, chink to chink, 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 chink. Like the crew was coming down the hill. Like dirt was moving. I would like to think you would not hear that anymore. Certainly less frequently. It was a good crew. They were a productive crew. Um, but that was the culture in 1992. And I can only imagine what it was in 1972, right? Um, and I think we've come a long way. I'd like to think we've come a long way. Um, I mentioned working for JP on Alpine and like how they would listen and how, you know, they wouldn't always like change, change course and they might not explain real time, but later on they could give you some context. And I do think we're a little more open now, a little more open to input, um, to new ideas ways of doing things. And I, I'll never know what that crew member said, right? Maybe that's a person that had just been complaining all season. I don't know. But um, I think we have a more positive culture that allows people to learn and grow. Because if you, if you have a crew where it's shut the bleep up and put your head down and dig, they're, they're not going to have a chance to learn. They might dig a lot of line, but two years from now, three years from now, how much have they grown? What do they contribute? back to the crew and the organization. Yeah, they're not they're not truly developing. They're maybe getting fit, getting tough, right. but they're not they're not developing and and you know going on to the types of positions in the organization that that you have. Heck yeah, I think um because we're not all going to be here forever and we got to be sure that there's somebody coming along behind us that's going to do better than us and if you treat them that way they're not going to be ready or that's all they're going to know. And that's what they're going to emulate. And they're not going to want to. Exactly. Yeah. So to me, if you ask what I think's changed over the last 20 years, I think we've learned some stuff on just how to deal with other people and help people grow. Are there, um, I'm not going to pick a turn this time either. Just chime in whoever wants to answer, but are there any, initiatives, programs, things happening at, at your levels right now or any level that have you um, a, a little bit excited about the future of the Wildland Fire Program? Anything anything give you a lot of hope and, and excitement for where we're going? 
I don't know about initiatives and, you know, there's a lot you could throw into there. I do, speaking of learning, I think the emphasis that we've placed on staff rides and starting to branch out into other areas of, you know, not just fire staff rides or military staff rides, but, but some of the other, um, you know, the Selma staff ride that's been put together and, uh, um, you know, looking at other opportunities for those type of historical events um, that are non-fire related, but uh, are, are huge leadership moments, I think is super exciting and, and in broadening sort of our understanding and the diversity of how we learn um, and that environment. So that definitely stands out to me. And I, I pre- really appreciate the work and efforts that have been put into developing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, Kelly, I think a lot about innovation and you know, I was, I was pretty fortunate to get pulled in early on with us getting involved in staff rides and sand table exercise, tactical decision games. I got to go back to Quantico when we were first learning about this stuff. Um, I got to be pretty involved in incident within an incident planning and um, medical emergency response. We're, we're seeing now like the emphasis on mental health, right? And overall wellness. Right. I think that excites me because we had these blind spots, right? Or we just didn't know it was, it was an unknown. And we learned, we started learning how to do staff rides and TDGs and stecks. Um, we stecks being sand table exercises. Yep. Right? And, and then we learned, you know, we, Back when I was on cruise, really, it was like if somebody got hurt, we just, we took care of it. We dealt with it. And we learned from Andy Palmer's death that, you know, we, we just need to do a better job of planning and, and then implementing the plan. And now I think we've learned that we need to do a better job taking care of employees and people overall, both mental health and wellness, just in general. And it gives me encouragement because what's next, Right. Let's keep working on that. Let's get better at that. I'm not saying move on already. I'm saying that there's something else out there that we don't see yet. And there are a bunch of really smart people out on the ground and in the regions and whatever the land management unit is. And somebody out there is going to come up with the next thing that we really need to be focused on. And that gives me um, hope for the future. Well, and it's nice to see... um... I, you know, I would agree the emphasis on, on mental health and taking care of our people and, and there are support at all levels yeah. for that to, to improve at the agency level, department level, um, you know, congressional levels. And that's exciting. I, I think times are changed and, and wildland firefighting and our organization is, um, very supported in general. Um, and the support from the public and the f- support from our politicals and, and, and making an improvement to um, our workforce and to the work-life balance and the mental health and all those parts and pieces that that professionalize what we're doing. So I am excited by how much attention and positive attention, I would say, you know, not all attention is, is good. And, (laughs) and I do think the attention that we have is really positive and there's a lot of people working towards um, long-term goals of improvements. Well, and that's the thing about working in a bureaucracy, right? I, I know some people have heard me say this, that 
when you take a job working for the government, you know you're working for a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. You walking in the door, you know it. Now, I'm not saying that you have to like the bureaucracy, you have to agree with the bureaucracy or perpetuate it, but you are. So figure out how to work within that system, how to make it work for you, how to push here and there. And it's a great, as Sarah was just saying, like there's a lot of support. So capitalize on that support, use the system to our advantage, right? And because there's all these things out there, it's not just us. Like I I don't have the ability to make a lot of changes in HR practices or compensation, right? That that is not in my ability as a fire director or division chief. Now I can influence that and I have to know who the right people are to talk to and push and when to push and how hard to push and when to quit pushing. But I think taking advantage of those things are pretty important and just recognizing it coming in um, gives gives you a leg up on how to positively affect change. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, uh, for us, like it actually does take an act of Congress to, yeah. to make some things happen, but there's a lot of things we can do within what our, um, you know, authority is. And yeah, that's, and that's key. There's a lot of things we can't do too, as exactly. an executive branch agency, there are things we cannot do. Mm-hmm. So just figuring out how to thread that needle and, and use what is out there and and what you can do. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, we always like to stay focused on the lessons and the learning and, and just having folks at the table with me here uh, to, who have, you know, lengthy careers. Do you have one lesson that you've learned that's kind of a key thing for you that, that you've learned navigating a career in fire, the bureaucracy, you know, work-life balance, any, any context you want to come up with, but what's a, what's a lesson related to your career that, that you would share? Sarah, I'll jump on that one if you want. Go for it. Um, you can affect positive change and it may take longer than you want or that you feel like it should, but you can affect positive change. And I just mentioned like knowing when to push, when to stop pushing you know, a week, a month, a year later, somebody will say, Hey, I've been thinking about medical emergency planning. Really? Cause I got some thoughts on that too. And you start pushing again, what, whatever it might be, whatever it is, um, you can affect change. And, you know, I've got a, a little book open here cause I want to get this right. And I wasn't sure that the time would be right, but one of my favorite quotes, um, is from Harry Truman. And, and this really came, I had to really recognize this, um, working on the Dutch Creek mitigations. And that was a big part of my life. And I know it affected our family and just the way I viewed the world back really from, I'll say 2009 when I got involved for a long time. But Harry Truman said, you can accomplish anything in life provided that you do not mind who gets the credit. Right. We're all in it together. It's public service. Some of you that have taken some of the leadership classes, you know, talk about service for the common good. So it just, it took a while for me to figure, figure out and learn that it might take longer than you want, but you can do it. Right. 
that that was a big lesson for me because I'm a I'm a pretty much a, a I use a compass rose right like when it came to getting EMTs on the fire line and more EMTs on the fire line and arduous duty and all the medical stuff I would use this analogy I'm a 360 kind of guy right you know zero or 360 whichever you want to call it straight ahead but I felt like I would often get blocked no matter what well you can't do that so I'd have to go to you know, 25 degrees and I'd wind up at sometimes 89 degrees. It was an oblique angle, but I was still moving forward. And then eventually you start swinging it back towards zero and true North. Um, took longer than I wanted, but we got it done. Yeah. You know, Chad, you, you've mentioned a couple of times Dutch Creek and Andy Palmer. You want to just address that a little bit? So what your role was uh, in you know the event and and what your role was with the park service at that time kelly you know um without going into all of it i would recommend people go to the lessons learn center and watch remembering andy palmer i actually just watched it yesterday yeah that that will sum it up really well and um the short version uh if i i always kind of get emotional even though i'm there um 18 year old Young man, big kid, big kid, first shift, first fire, and um, was struck by a portion of a tree. Um, the spot, really hard and good intentions and um, efforts. Um, Andy wound up dying before he ever got to definitive medical care. And that is a really abbreviated version and part of it is because I know I'll struggle getting through it. Um, so then, as anytime somebody dies, I don't care if it's on a fire or if it's at a stop sign, there has to be a death investigation, right? And then there was some miscommunication, some misunderstanding maybe, and the internal fire service, park service, interagency review was delayed by the time it started, I had started as the Park Service Safety Program Manager. And really my first involvement was looking at the draft factual report. And then ultimately, a lot of the corrective actions that came out of that report, um, I helped with some of those. I helped draft some of those. I helped with the Serious Accident Investigation Summit that was held by um, a large interagency community that spanned fire and law enforcement. And, um, you know, the Forest Service started making some changes right around then in the way that they viewed and, and they led the way on the interagency community. And we don't use the same processes now necessarily, but we've come to a, a lot better understanding of what each other's processes are and how we integrate with each other. But I really, in my job, I had the opportunity to start working on moving us forward and planning for those things, that blind spot we had had. And, um, and about that time, Jim Cook was decided to retire. He had been the, the keeper of the incident response pocket guide, the RPG you mentioned earlier. Cook was the Forest Service uh, leadership program manager at that time. Yeah, and he came to me and asked me if I was willing to take it on. And uh, Dan Buckley was my boss, the two of them. They used to be the soup and foreman on Arrowhead Hot Shots. 
and they're standing there in my cubie door and like, how do you say no to that? Right. And, um, but then Britt Rosso, your predecessor at the Lessons Learned Center and Travis and Alex and some others, like I was, I was standing in line to register our kid for kindergarten when Britt called me and said, Hey, we've been talking. And they came up with the three questions, right? And, um, the pink sticker was born and, you know, we were able to start putting those into RPG and the Lessons Learned Center was critical, crucial in that. Yeah, and the pink sticker was the initial yeah. nine-line or medical instant response that is now codified and, yeah, it has its own dedicated page, not a not a pink sticker. But it was an innovative way to get critical information and criti- a critical lesson to, you know. Quickly. Quickly, yeah. yeah. And um, so it just kind of evolved from there. And over time... It was probably 2013, 14. Like, I didn't need to be as involved. It had legs. And, and it had started earlier, right? I, I mentioned Britt calling me and he and Alex and Travis and others that were, had been, you know, and Alex wound up leading this kind of informal group and they were trying to develop the first medical incident report. And um, other people started doing things and eventually I became a node, right? Um, I was just like, well, have you talked to so-and-so? Well, this group's working on that, right? And would connect them up. And eventually my phone quit ringing. I was no longer needed to do that stuff. And that was like, um, that's the biggest thing I'll ever do in my career. If you want to talk about my legacy, that's it. That's it. And I don't, you know, it goes back to the Truman quote. Like, it doesn't really matter if anybody knows that. But you know it. Well. And that's something, I mean, that is such an amazing innovation in our business to prevent loss of life. I, I would say reduce the chances. Reduce the chances. And that was something that I, I was pretty adamant about when I was working a lot of serious accident investigations and, and injury reviews and that sort of stuff. Um, I would not sit there and let folks in positions of leadership tell others that we're going to prevent this from ever happening again. Right. Because we're Good not. Distinction. Yeah. Good distinction. We're going to reduce the chances of the same thing happening or similar. That's the best we can ever hope for because there's always risk. You put people in the woods doing what our people do, or you just put people in a vehicle driving. I don't, the finance section chief or a logs chief or plans chief, if they're driving from, I don't know, pick a spot, Lander, Wyoming, to cover a fire, you know, with their team and they've had to go to Northern California, just that exposure. And when you ask people to do that, they are being exposed to some level of risk. What can we do to, to minimize that to an acceptable level? And that is the very core of the mission of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center, you know, reduce the complexity and risk in the wildland fire environment. And um, that's why we, you know, we see that you're, we're, we're very happy that you're moving on for you personally and for Sarah and, and your boys, but we're going to miss that vision and support. It's, it's been incredibly, incredibly huge. And as soon as I told the staff, Chad's retiring, it was like everybody's jaw dropped. And we selfishly, at least me, I started going, who's going to fight my fights? <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing, amazing legacy. And I think it's, 
it it this the whole legacy of this this center is is in your family and and I think that's such a cool thing to think about uh, well and it's interesting you you know the legacy of the family and I think you know Chad probably won't say this but you know it's his legacy it's also Andy's mm-hmm. legacy and 100%. that was very important to him and the connection with Janet Palmer Andy's mom and the commitment that event would not go without some learning and some improvement and, and at Andy's loss I, I think that's such a huge thing that we can do, uh, you know, may, help those that are left understand how hard we're going to work to, right. to, you know, address these things. And it, just the, the, the logo for the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center has the 14 stars, right. you know, because we were born after the 94 fire season and certainly South Canyon. Yeah, and, and try data. Try, yep, and I think there were, you know, 34 deaths that year that, mm-hmm. you know, was prompted. We're going to make a change, and, you know, um, and thankfully we had a good fist pounder <laughs> in, that got us a, formally established in 2002, but it, it was, it, it we honor the, it, folks um, all the time and, and just even even in our, our logo, and I agencies work incredibly hard to do that at any level if they're you know local fire departments or 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 whatever but but learning learning from these incidents and um you know that's the heart of what we're trying to do and you know we've had your your good leadership uh since before i was the director and and we'll miss that for sure well thank you yeah the lessons learned center is really important and you know trying to, I mean, think about how far we have come, trying to get those lessons out to other people, right? So that not everybody has to learn the same lesson over and over the hard way. And, you know, one of the goals, and and again, I'll give the Forest Service credit of trying to become a learning organization. And, you know, at, at one point, like I remember sitting on the buggy in 94 and reading the South Canyon report you know, the old hard copy. Um, but then I didn't see any other reports personally for a long time, it seemed like, right? Um, now, the Lessons Learned Center, speaking of a node, like that is the, the collection and distribution point and everything from um, serious accident or learning reviews to facilitated learning analysis to RLS, or two more chains. Or I two mean, more chains, yeah. what gets produced in two more chains is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I used to say that uh, Jim Cook had the best job in the fire business. And then once he retired, I said, well, now Travis Dotson Travis does. Dotson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we have a, a great group and it's cool to have the, the mission. I mean, I was just talking the other day about like, you know, what's our lane? And, and I'm like, our lane is learning, right? And I'm like, we're lucky that that lane is like a great big, you know, huge interstate highway. So we can operate within that lane and we're good. And, you know, Chad, you have been such a help in keeping that lane there for us. I mean, it's so important to be a learning organization, to to have some autonomy, you know, and not 
have to take everything and vet it through a committee and and you know make sure it's approved and and all of these things it's it's learning it's raw you know dialogue in some cases it's it's got to be that way to be lesson based and I would just love to hear you frame up why you think it is so important to maintain that autonomy. Yeah, I know Kelly, um, when we went through the interview process and, and so forth and, and feeling behind Brit, right? Like I was looking to, I wasn't looking for the next Brit. He did a great job and, and where the Lessons Learned Center was needed to go at that point. And then to me, it was like, what's next? And we really talked about myself and Dan Buckley and Sean Cross with NWCG at the time um, about the Lessons Learned Center. It was important to me, and it remains important to me, that like you don't even have an office in the Park Service suite at NIFSI at the Fire Center. Because I don't want anybody thinking the Park Service is exerting undue influence on the Lessons Learned Center and the work you do. Now, I'll say that trust has a big part to to play in that, right? Like, you know, I trust you and your judgment and your staff's judgment not to do something that's going to, like, cause such an issue that we have to start making changes. So that relationship and trust um, is important. But you, you need that autonomy to get the real lessons out there. Now, there's a there's a difference, right, between providing lessons and actually people learning. Travis has a quote along that line, doesn't he? Yeah, l- uh, lessons available. Yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, so lessons available, mm-hmm. that, right, Sarah? Like, and so it's incumbent upon the rest of the organization, and that's from the tool swinger like me sitting in the buggy reading the hard copy. South Canyon report to, you know, now some kids sitting there, sorry, you probably shouldn't call them kids, right? But um, a crew member sitting there on the buggy with their phone, reading what's on the Lessons Learned Center or two more chains that Sarah talked about to our organizations. Like as we go through course revisions and all that, I think that though that material is there and available and we don't, we shouldn't have to look that up again or bring in just my slide set. Let's go to the Lessons Learned Center and see what's there and available and pull that in. You just brought that up on something recently about ensuring we were tying into the Lessons Learned. I can't even remember what it was. Oh, it was but... on the um, fire executive call, oh, that's I right. think it was. Yeah, the fire executive call. Yeah, like it's, you know... NWCG has a big program of work and there's a lot going on in training development and the, um, the systems improvement and the, um, incident performance modernization project. I can't, I think that's the right title now. Um, but all their work outside of the folks here, um, all the subject matter experts are collateral duty. All the committee members on NWCG member, uh, uh, committees are collateral duty. They got other stuff to do. And I guarantee you, pretty much every one of them also take fire assignments. Yeah, um, for sure. And they're also, you know, they've got a personal life. So we need to capitalize on the lessons available, cut the work where we can, right? Work smarter, not harder. 
So I, I think it's really important. And I think the material that the Lessons Learned Center provides is available to that crew member on the buggy, to me as a division chief for fire and aviation management and all points in between. Yeah, it's, you know, we've had a lot of discussions as, uh, you know, since I've been to, at the Lessons Learned Center, kind of thinking of I'm the third director, so we, we call it 3.0, you know, and what does that really mean and, and how do we want to drive forward and, and evolve? And, um, you know, I think providing, you know, these, as our mission statement says, again, the, the relevant products and we try and hit that mark. Some things are very tangible lessons like, you know, carry a strobe light and so that if you can, aviation assets can see you much better than, you know, trying to get a signal mirror or something, right? Like carry a strobe light. That's a pretty tangible, we, we call them nuts and bolts. That's a, like a, a thing, right? But also, you know, pushing people to consider something just look at something maybe different just think about things enter into some dialogue they don't have to agree with what we say in two more chains or in a a blog post or something but have we got gotten them to start talking about it and considering it and and I think those are the things like you know data that comes in and we can analyze and provide something or just generating discussion and we do we do try that and I, I think it, the autonomy is so critical. The more, the longer I'm here, the more I learn and explore this this notion of a just culture or, or some of those things. It's like it's it is very critical. But as you say, trust is is at the heart of it. Yeah, it's. Um, I tell the boys sometimes at home, and I've said this at work too. If you're going to be dumb, at least be smart about it, right? <laughs> so you know, it, like I know that there was one that came up a while back where like, mm, Chad, we should probably, you should probably be aware of this. And like, we started having a conversation and right now that's on hold. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it'll get to be shared at some point, but like, yeah. that's that trust, right? And, um, you were being smart about the way you went, went about your work and you recognize something that might be a little more sensitive than others. And we'll get there, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Sarah, we sort of went on a, route there but i would like to hear uh you know what's a what's a lesson for you in your career and yeah i don't know that i have a something specific i think just going back to the learning like as as confident as i might be in any topic or environment or whatever the case i think um just recognizing there's always more to the story or more out there or more i could learn more i could understand and uh we've got you know, I'm involved in a lot of complex issues and it's being aware of always absorbing and taking in and, and seeking out, you know, more information to be, to just be, uh, better educated and, and, um, and, you know, serve, serve the agency well. So I, I, you know, there's not a hard lesson that I can think of that was like, oh yeah, this happened and I'll never do that again kind of thing. But I have learned along the way that I'll never know a hundred percent of the story or the, of the situation. And I need to be willing and open and, and, um, capable of, of understanding and, and allow, um, just the continuous improvement model. You know, you hit on one of our basic tenets of, <laughs> of learning in the wildland fire service, you know, comes straight from our 
publication, Learning in the Wildland Fire Service, the tenet of being humble and accepting that you you're not going to ever be an expert if you get to that point right of uh expert i'm an expert i'm a i'm you know it's that notion of perfection like we talked about right and understanding that and and maintaining the humbleness to know and and that's the same like if you're reading a report if you think you know before you've even cracked the pages what happened and why um you're not in a, a learning mindset to actually take something away. So I, I, I think that's actually a super brilliant lesson. And I think what a great thing for um, all folks working in the Forest Service to know that their deputy director is humble enough to say that on a episode of a podcast. I think it's cool. Yeah. So. You know, Sarah, what it reminded me of is, uh, you know, anybody in ops, the running joke used to be, right, who's who's the smartest firefighter on the fire or the smartest firefighter on a burn? It's the second-year firefighter, right? <laughs> yeah, right? Sorry to all you second-year firefighters <laughs> out there. Um, because the more the more you learn and the higher you, the more qualifications, the higher you move in the organization, the more you realize you don't know and that you've got to have that mindset, right? I mean, would you be successful if you didn't have oh, that? not at all. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, that's very cool. I do want to ask a question that's maybe a little silly, but perhaps people are curious. Sarah, you referenced earlier something Chad said on a fire executive council call. Um, what happens if there's a policy decision and you think the other one's wrong? You totally disagree. Does that, uh, does, yeah, somebody have to sleep on the couch? <laughs> well, we laugh. We, 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 uh, we try our best to leave work at work and, and not at home. Um, you know, we've, we often talk about the different backgrounds that we have come up through. And, and so there's a lot we don't agree on. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. It's been that way since day one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I always, I uh, used to say I came up through ops and she came up through finance. So there's just some things we can't talk about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, uh, sometimes they are passionate discussions, uh, we, we do try to, uh, I, I can sometimes get in the mode of, you're not going to sway me now. Now I'm going to dig in my heels. Cause really? <laughs> that's the Gale girl that's coming out. Girl, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Continuous learning, but I might be right sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, we do, you know, share our perspectives and have those conversations. Um, but we really do try to just put them to rest and move on into just, the work-life balance and and that's the life balance that um is really important and and uh you know i think our boys witness it and and they'll call us out sometimes when needed but well and clearly we do talk about work at home now sometimes that might be the two of us but with the pandemic and working from home and during the summer and so forth you know so clearly like the park service is the liaison from NMAC to both California geographic areas. Like there's a lot goes on down there and they hear me on the phone or on teams. Right. But I think you said power couple a while ago, Kelly, and I was talking to somebody earlier well, in September and, um, they kind of made the same comment and I'm like, nah, you know, really, it's not like we sit around trying to plot the fate of the fire world, right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, over a cocktail, like, all right, this, yeah, <laughs> break out mini me. And what are we going to do? And, um, and, and she was like, really, you don't 
like, why not? I'm like, cause, <laughs> oh my God, you know, you can only talk about this stuff so much, right? Like, and we've got kids and a family and we want to go camping or bike riding or, right? So try to leave that. Yes, sometimes we talk about work, um, but probably not as much as people think. We'll find out. I was thinking about it on the ride out here, right? We'll find out here in about a month when right. I'm not working anymore. Right. Do we do we still talk about it? And then there are some things where I'm just like, I don't want to know. Like, right. yeah, you're, you're, that's your agency. You do what you're doing. You can call me at work, right? Like if I hear her talking about something, like I don't, I don't like try to lurk and hear a phone call. <laughs> like those are things that we should be doing at work and we should be living our lives as a family when we're at home. You know, this is a, a good opportunity here. I, I, this is a, a surprise question. I spoke to Mr. Beckett Fisher <laughs> and um, asked him, hey, you know, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to interview your folks for this episode of our podcast. I said, is there a question that you think that I should ask? And, you know, Beckett's a smart kid. He's, I mean, and so is Asa. They're picking all kinds of things up and just um, articulate. But anyway, so I have a question for you. And uh, this comes from Beckett. So given the, you know, context of careers in wildland fire, sometimes volatile, sometimes, you know, intense, all of that stuff. What negative or positive influence do you think discussing work or work life has had on me and Asa? (laughs) And he probably came up with that just like that too, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I do have his response here. So, Uh, Oh Lord. Now the pressure's on Sarah. Oh, I, I get to go first. Well, we talked a little bit about the influence on ASA and yeah. that critical thinking, and I will call that a positive. Yeah. Absolutely will call that a positive. I mean, I have, uh, you know, I, I, I do see some negatives in just the 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 balance of work and, and the, um, it, you know, it's not an eight-to-five job, and they know that. And coming up, just doing the incident management team and the responses, I mean, we missed out on a, I missed out on a lot of summer activities. And, and you know, Chad would be home dealing with NMAC for 12 hours a day during the fire season, and I'm off on a, on a fire. And, and they are super resourceful and independent children. Which um, is good. Yes, so there's another positive. But... <laughs> I would say maybe they got resourceful and independent a little too early. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. But, um, but I do, I mean, I, I, I will, I think I'll always have some regrets about missing, um, missing out on some of that and feeling they do, they never Mm-mm. do anything to make us feel any level of guilt. And, you know, to this day, apologizing, you know, just two days ago I had to leave. I needed to be at the office and on a call and raring to go, you know, by seven o'clock in the morning. And I didn't even get to see them awake. And uh, they are so gracious. And, you know, it's okay, mom, we understand we got you. And, and we tried to keep constant communication. We have a little text string going. It's called the people, of course, Beckett named that. (laughs) Yeah, the people. And um, we just keep in constant in check with each other. So there might be more negatives that he has in his answer that I'm not sure I want to hear. Right. Yeah, God, there was a lot that you said there that now I wish I could reel it all back in. But I do think that critical thinking, they are resourceful and independent. I think one thing that, you know, Sarah mentioned her being on teams and being gone. I was on a team in the what, mid-2000s, 
um, and then took single resource assignments. In 2015, we thought we'd both be on teams. That didn't work. Well, you know that. You had to keep our kids. (laughs) Like, Kelly, I have a fire assignment. I need to leave in two hours. Okay, Sarah, drop off your children at NIFSI, (laughs) and I'll keep them for two weeks. Okay. (laughs) We we had a blast with them. They were so fun. Yeah, so fun. Good kids. Yeah, that was not a good plan. That was not a good plan. And, you know, I was fortunate, and um, I did get asked to do a detail to the regional office outside of fire, and they were like, no, you can't be on a team, but I couldn't get home when she had to leave, right? We thought we had it all figured out, and thank God it was Kelly to the rescue. Um, I would take single resource assignments, DO, IC3, agency rep, that sort of thing, because for me, that helped me stay in touch with what was going on in a park. And you can kind of extrapolate that over the other units, right? Like what's going on? for those people in that unit. And and that was good grounding for me. So I wasn't gone as much, but the thing about a national office job, especially safety, ops, branch chief, some of the things that Sarah has, is dealing with, especially now, it's always fire season somewhere, always, always. Um, and even if it's just burn season, there are things going on and the phone rings during the football playoffs a couple of weeks ago as a family we were trying to watch sit down and like that was going to be our time phone rings there'd been an incident right um so that's to me that's been one of the negatives is like just getting pulled away um, from some of the little things and i don't want to oversell that because i've got to be there but a lot of times um in some ways the pandemic was a little harder because some people know my office was in the garage and you know, say the CalMAC call would be at 1800 in California, so seven or 1900 for us. And I would be out in the garage at like 2000 and all of a sudden be like, oh crap, have the boys eaten anything? Right? At least if I was at Nifty in the office, there's that kind of mental clock of like, okay, have, the, have they burnt the house down? You know? And, and at least you kind of go home. But when you're just in the same house, but you're working, you don't necessarily realize that, holy crap, I haven't seen those kids in like hours. You know, what are they doing? We'd see your dog tied to... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Charlie tied to the cement block. Yes, out there in the driveway or yard. But I do think, you know, there's some positives, and I think Sarah's right. Like, neither, I don't think either of our boys would say that they've been neglected. But at the same time, I know know, they've missed out. Yeah, let's hear. Maybe they will. I'll tell you what Beckett said, and I think this is great. He said, the basis of that question was because I feel like me and Asa have a much stronger social life, especially with adults, because of how much we've interacted with our parents' work. Oh, wow. I think that, I mean, that's a, they are, they are very comfortable in adult situations and can talk to just about anybody. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and, And part of that, I think we always as a couple, we wanted to treat our kids like people, yeah. right? Yeah. I think you guys have done a very good job. And I think it's going to be very exciting to, you know, Sarah, you're going to have, you'll have dinner on the dinner table. Dinner made, absolutely. There weren't many requirements. Dinner was one. Yeah, was yes. One yeah. I'm going to call it supper, though. No. Yes. Yeah, it's supper. I do not eat supper. Dinner is the noon meal. (laughs) That is a debate in our house, clearly. You may just have to say the evening meal then, huh? 
Chad will prepare the evening meal. Yes. You know, we, we started this conversation talking about legacy. I think clearly, Chad, we've talked a little bit about your legacy Dutch Creek, those those kinds of things. Anything anything you want to add that you want when you walk out the door here at the end of the month, you that you'd like to be you'd like to leave. You know, I just that I care, right? That I care about people, care about the mission, care about the resource, and I don't care whose land ownership it is, right? The resource. Um, I don't care what color of engine or buggy or whatever. Um, it's the people that really matter. Um, and I know that there are folks on the ground that, and, and I used to remember saying things about people working at Biffsy, you know, okay, Nipsey. Um, like, when was the last time they were on a fire? And Well, maybe I haven't been on a fire as recently as you, but I care. Right. And trying to do right by people. Um, There's some out there that I've been able to help a little more than others or coach, mentor. And that's just part of it because I had great coaches, great mentors. I named some earlier. Um, I guess that's it. Like if there's one other thing walking out the door that the people matter, the resource matters, that every day I tried to do the right thing. You know, do, you know, like what, what was right um, and tried to get better and take care of people. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say well done. Sarah, do you have any closing thoughts for us on, um, you know, learning, legacy, uh, any of the stuff we've talked about? I think I'm still working on my legacy. need to figure out what that's going to be. Um, no, I just appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this. I think it's awesome um, and, and what the Lessons Learned Center does. And, and so thank you for bringing me into the conversation and, and to be part of the legacy because it's pretty amazing. And uh, I look forward to the continuous improvement and, and, uh, and the support and, and the Lessons Learned Center for thriving. So. Awesome. We're going to do it. We're, we continue to try and do your dad proud and, and the other you know leaders that – had the vision at that time to implement the, you know, the tri data study and, and really embrace it. And, uh, sometimes we do make people a little uncomfortable. Um, but, but embracing us is to embrace continuous improvement, you know? So, yeah. Drive on sister. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I'll be reaching out for a coffee once in a while, yeah, Chad, yeah. so we can, so I can ground truth a little with the, you know. He'll have a lot of free time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for your time, you guys. It, this has been, this has been really fun. Cool. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. A big thanks to Sarah and Chad for the conversation. I appreciate their openness and candor. I hope you learned something about the business of wildland fire that you didn't know before. And I hope you're challenged to consider what learning in the wildland fire service means to you. The 2008 Dutch Creek tree felling fatality and fallen firefighter Andy Palmer mentioned several times in our conversation are a central part of Chad's story. It's clear his family is also connected to this event and Andy. To learn more about the Dutch Creek incident, 
please visit our incident review database and search Dutch Creek. This event forever linked Chad's legacy and the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center. It's something we're super proud of. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Wildfire Lessons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, share, give us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wildfire Lessons. For more information, visit wildfirelessons.net. Music provided by second generation smoke jumper Steve Baker, who always likes to keep one foot in the black. Thanks, Steve. Remember, we honor through learning.